So this young uh, boy walked into a barber shop, and the barber saw him come in, and he whispered to his client into his ear. He said, this kid is as dumb as a bag of rocks. Watch, let me prove it to you. And so he went to the register, and he took out a dollar, and he took out 50 cents, and he held them in his hand. He called the boy over. He said, hey, son, come on over. Take one. The kid, very coyly, very shy, looked at the barber, looked at his hands. You could care he was having a hard time making the decision. And finally, he grabbed the 50 cents, the two quarters, and he ran out. And the barber said, what I tell you? He does that every week. I offer him the same dollar and the, and the two coins, and he does the same thing every week. He runs out and taking the quarters. I told you he's dumb as a bag of hammers. Or rocks, I think I said. Well, later, the customer was out in the neighborhood. He went into the, the drugstore, and he saw the young boy at the ice cream counter, and he was getting a scoop of ice cream. And he went up to him, and he said, listen, you know, the barber told me you're not very bright. I don't want to be rude and all, but why are you only taking the quarters? He's offering you a dollar. You always take the quarters. And the boy thought for a minute, and he licked his ice cream cone, and he said, well, the second I take the dollar, the game's over. <laughs> See, you should never judge a book by its cover. Let's pray. Father, thank you so very much for this opportunity to be here this morning and for a chance to look at your word. Help us to peel back the cover and to look deeply into it and let it minister to us and speak to us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 12. I've got the scriptures on the screen. You can follow along in your Bible or on your phone if you'd like. It says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, if you've been following our series, you know that it's Tuesday, the last week of Jesus' life. He's in the temple courts. He spent much of the whole, most of the day getting into arguments with various religious leaders because they were upset that the day before he had cleared out the temple, called curses down on the temple, and called for the end of the Jewish religion as they knew it. So they were obviously upset. Just most recently, he had just finished an argument with a group known as the Sadducees. Now, if you were here yesterday, they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's right. When you die, you just die, and that's very sad, you see. It's okay. You can get it. So, he just finished this argument, and there was a teacher of the law who happened to be standing there and watching Jesus in these interactions. Now, we're unclear if he saw just this one or a few, but I think we can, we can assume that he had been there and he had kind of witnessed what was going on. And he decides to jump in to the fray. Now, let me give you a little background about the teachers of the law. They were just that. They were learned men whose business it was to study, memorize, and comment on the law. They were the experts. Sometimes they were called scribes. Now, if we were to compare this account in Mark with the same account in the Gospel of Matthew, we would find out that this teacher of the law was also a Pharisee. And he had a little gang of Pharisees with him. And they were encouraging him to jump in and go toe-to-toe with Jesus. It's pretty obvious that the Pharisees... This teacher of the law, the scribes, they didn't think very highly of Jesus. At best, he was incompetent. 
I mean, he was from Nazareth. After all, what good can come out of Nazareth? It was the sticks. It was, uh, it was the Fillmore of their day. Just teasing. That was for Greg and Susan. They live in Fillmore. At worst, he was a bad actor. He was a charlatan with bad intentions. I mean, after all, except for the Pharisees, I mean, the Sadducees, who were easy pickings. I mean, really, the Sadducees came and claimed that Jesus didn't know his Bible, and he very quickly dispatched them. They clearly didn't know their Bible, and none of the other religious groups really respected the Sadducees to begin with because of how poorly their scholarship was. But except for his interaction with the Sadducees, if you think about all the different interactions we've looked at over the past few weeks, sometimes Jesus comes off as evasive. The first argument, or the first interaction was by whose authority, and Jesus said, well, what was John's authority? He didn't really answer the question. The next interaction was, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus said, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to, to, to God what is God's. You get this sense that they were looking at Jesus as, man, this guy's being kind of evasive. He's not really giving us quality. And I think that's the accusation they're making. Jesus was unqualified to teach what he was teaching in the temple courts. So you almost get this picture of, you know, the, the Pharisees, and they got this teacher of the law. He's a, he's a big shot, and his buddies are kind of rubbing his shoulders. Okay, Jesus, get ready. Okay, buddy, get ready to get in there. As soon as the Sadducees get out of the way, okay, you go. Go get him. You know, and he runs in. He taps in. He's ready to go. And so he asked Jesus a question, and the question is intended to expose Jesus' incompetence. His lack of education, his lack of, the, of, of understanding these high concepts that only the teachers of the law, the scribes, the experts would debate. They would consider and, and talk amongst themselves. So let me give you a background. For generations, Jewish scholars, teachers, had tried to summarize the Mosaic law, all 600 and some odd commandments, into a singular command or statement. When they ask Jesus, what is the greatest command? This is really what they're asking him. How would you summarize the Mosaic law? That was the debate. That was the, the conversation that the people in the know, the experts were having. And it had gone on in Israel for generations. In fact, in my opinion, probably the most famous story came from about a generation before Jesus uh, and, and famous explanation came about a generation before Jesus through a rabbi or a teacher known as Hillel. He was famous in Jesus' day, and he's still famous today. Many temples, Jewish temples, if you pass by them, synagogues, they're, they're named Hillel something. It's after him. He's considered to be one of the greatest teachers in Jewish history. He was asked by a non-believer to summarize the law while standing on one foot. In other words, he was saying, could you please be brief? Give me, give me the, the, the summary. And here's how Hillel answered him. What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. The rest is the explanation of this. Go and study it. That's a pretty darn good answer. 
And to the Jews in Jesus' day, and even to many today, that is still the gold standard. Hillel set the bar. I mean, what a great summary of all 613 laws. And the question is, the challenge that this teacher of the law put in front of Jesus, thinking that he was probably some country boy with some, some great in, you know, homespun wisdom, but when he's really put to the screws, when he's really tested, you're going to find out that he's really not qualified to be talking about the things he's talking about. And, and you can see the crowd, all eyes are on Jesus. What's he going to say? Is he going to compete with Hillel? Is he going to come up with an answer as good or better than, or is he going to become evasive? What is he going to do? There's a couple in our church that I dearly love. Dean and Juliet Reeser. Many of you know them. And you know, right now in their life, they're going through a difficult time. And I asked, it's okay to share. But their house is in complete disarray. It's in shambles. There was some construction done. It's a big problem. And they have been living like campers in their own house for many months now. And if you were to just look at them right now and, and make a judgment on them in this moment, in this little slice of their life, you might think, well, look at these people. They're derelicts. They can't even keep their house in order. They, like, they can't pay their bills. They're having all kinds of problems. I'm not saying that's true. I'm saying that that's what you might think about them. By looking at their moment, at this moment in time in their life. But you're ignoring the 20-something or more years that they've been Christians. And you're ignoring that they are some of the highest caliber people in our fellowship. Some of the most generous and good-hearted people I know. And they have been incredibly faithful over the years. And yes, right now, it's a very challenging time. Never judge a book by its cover. The Pharisee, this teacher of the law who happened to be a Pharisee, he made a judgment about Jesus in what I think was just a few hours of watching him interact with some other religious leaders. And he made a decision that this guy was incompetent and I'm going to show why? I'm going to prove to the people that this guy's unqualified to be this great teacher, this Messiah, this, this, this savior figure that the people want him to be. But he didn't know the whole story. Verse 29, the most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. So Jesus responds. He doesn't evade. He doesn't turn the question back around on this teacher of the law. He wades directly into it and he gives his answer. What it means, to, what the law means to him while standing on one foot. And he does so by quoting from the law itself a book in the law called Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Jews called this the Shema. It comes from the word here. Shema means here. This phrase, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Was something that pious Jews for generations would say two times a day. Once in the morning and once in the evening. And then... Almost without skipping a beat, Jesus adds to that a quote from another book of the law, Leviticus chapter 19, where he says, love your neighbor 
as yourself. To Jesus, he summarized the entire law into one simple command. Love God and love others. How do you think he did compared to Hillel? What's your reaction to Hillel's definition and Jesus' definition? Think about that for a minute. From God's lips to your ears, the greatest commandment is to love God and to love others. There's irony here. The irony is that the Jewish experts, guys like Hillel and many others, that's not how they summarized it. Hillel talked about don't do what you hate. You know, what you hate, don't do to other people. Other experts summarized it other ways. But it was right there in front of them all the time, written in the law itself. Twice a day for generations, pious Jews would get up and quote the Shema, and somehow they missed it. Somehow they didn't connect the Shema to the greatest commandment, to the summary of the law. It seems unbelievable to me that they could miss this until I realize how many things I miss. And if you're a husband, you should know. We miss a lot of things. And if you have, a, do- uh, if you have a, a teenage daughter, you miss even more. I just found out this past week from my daughter that I have been missing things. I don't know when I should hug her and when I shouldn't. I think that I'm supposed to hug her whenever I see her. But apparently that's not the case. She wants hugs when she wants those hugs, but it's really hard to tell. You'd think it's obvious, and I know she does. And many of the women in the room are looking at me going, it's obvious, don't you know? No, I really don't know. The the experts of the law, the teachers of the law, how could they miss this? It was something they said every morning and every evening. How could they not realize that this is the summary of the law? It's mind-boggling to me. But in fairness, we've been hearing this for 2,000 years because Jesus told it to us. I don't know what I would have thought 2,000 years ago before I heard Jesus' answer. What would you have thought? How would you have summarized the law not knowing how Jesus summarized it? This has got to be the worst failure of Occam's razor. Who knows what that is? Anybody know what Occam's razor is? Occam's razor is basically summed up like this. The obvious answer is usually the right answer. This has got to be the worst failure of the obvious answer being missed by the Jews. How could they not see it? Well, I'll tell you, they got caught up in all 613 of those laws. They started to debate which ones were more important than others. They, had, they even categorized them as heavy laws versus light laws. We do that. Christians have done that. Venial versus, I forget the other word. 
mortal or whatever, right? We have all these categories of which laws or which commands are more important, and we try to weigh them out. We try to decide when if we would just back up and listen to the words of Jesus and see the overview, it would be abundantly clear that the greatest of all commandments is to love God and to love others. It's so obvious, and yet they missed it. You know, the problem with judging a book by its cover is that you miss the obvious. I was having breakfast last week with uh, another minister, and uh, we were talking about church and just sharing experiences, and he was telling me that he was working on his church, being more loving, and he had gotten this book, and he was... He enjoyed the book. You know, he was reading it for himself. And the, and the book was about how to love your neighbor. And he said that the summary of the book, he laughed. Then he said at the end of the book, it asks the question, who is your neighbor? And then it answers the question by saying this. And I want you to hear this. Who is your neighbor? The person who lives on the right side and the left side of you. That's your neighbor. Duh. I mean, sometimes we make it so complicated. Sometimes we think our neighbor is some person out in the, the midst of vaguity, and we go out there to try to find them, and we forget that there's literally people living on either side of us. And maybe when Jesus said, love your neighbor, he was talking to literally about the guy standing next to you and the guy standing to the other side of you in his house there. But it's so easy to forget and to try to make it more complicated and to, and, to, and to miss the story because we just looked at the title of the book and we decided we knew what it meant. So I'm reading a book and it's about evangelism. Now the premise of this book is so obvious to me that I, I've been kicking myself for the past week on how could I miss this? I mean, how could I miss this? I'm a minister for crying out loud. This is what I do all day long. I think about these things. At least you, if you missed it, you could say, hey, I was at work. <laughs> this is my work. <laughs> Here's the premise of the book. You can't evangelize the world by yourself. Duh. But you can evangelize your world by yourself. Duh. How did I miss that? I have these visions of grandeur. We're going to evangelize the world. What does that mean? Well, this guy's putting meat on those bones. He's saying it's the eight, the eight to 15 people who you interact with every day. Those, that's literally your world. And if you would focus on those eight to 15 people, and if you would actually invest in those eight to 15 people, you're going to have the most impact you could possibly have. Greater than meeting the one-off guy on a roller coaster who happens to tell you his whole life story and then wants to come to church and gets converted. And you're like, what a great story. And we share those stories. And then we all think that that's evangelizing the world. And we miss that there's people living in our homes. There's neighbors on either side of us. And there's people we work with every day, about 8 to 15 of them who we will have the most impact with if we would just focus on them. And invest in them. Now, if you're, asking, if you're saying, well, yeah, that's just a book. And this one guy, well, I'll tell you something. He's the minister of a church in a tiny little town in California. 
and they have a membership of 10,000 people because he taught his church to focus on the 8 to 15. Duh! How did I miss that? Why do I think evangelism is all about running around and finding the one guy in the sea of a thousand when there's literally five guys around me all the time? I can't wait to finish this book. I can't wait to start introducing what this guy's talking about into our fellowship because I think it is the next step for us. I think it's exactly what we need. The good news is we have mission love. We figured it out that our mission is to love, to love God and to love others. And now we need flesh on the bone. Now we need a clear plan, a purposeful plan, a plan that every one of us can identify and say, this is what I'm doing. And we'll just let God do what he does. I hope, I hope that I'm whetting your appetite right now. I hope I'm just putting a little teaser out there for you to begin thinking about these things because in the next month, in the next couple months, I want to start talking to people individually. I want to start talking about, I want to buy copies of the book. I want people to, to start absorbing this information. And then as a church, I want us to come together like we did with Mission Love after plenty of time to process, to think it through, to refine it, to make it work. I want us to come together in some great celebration and let's do it. Let's evangelize your world. And the combined efforts will add up to the world. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to, and to love your neighbors yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. You can tell that Jesus started making sense to this guy. He was impressed. Jesus saw an opening. When the guy acknowledged that Jesus had hit it on the head, Jesus said, hey, man, you're not far. We're not so far off, you and me. You jumped into this fight thinking you were going to show me up, but I think we just found some common ground. I think we just came to an agreement. You're not very far from the kingdom of God. It's clear to me that this guy no longer thought of Jesus as some simpleton, some country boy, or even some charlatan but that he realized that Jesus was the real deal. He could, he could hold his own in the, in the category of elite. It's funny to me. But at this point, all the confrontations and all the accusations just kind of ended finally. I don't know if this was middle of the day or end of the day on Tuesday. I don't know when, but you can just sort of feel the air go out of the room. Oh. Finally, no more arguing, no more debating, no more challenges, no more questions designed to trick me or to trap me. Tuesday started out pretty rough, but by the end of the day, no one dared 
ask him any more questions. Jesus really is the real deal. But you'd never know that if you just judged him by the cover. If you don't open up the book and know the whole story, you're going to miss, like they missed the greatest commandment, you're going to miss what he was all about. So I don't know what happened to this guy. I don't know whatever became of this teacher of the law. The Bible doesn't seem to say anything more about him. But I know one thing, his opinion of Jesus was never the same. Never judge a book by its cover. Let's stand. I'll close this out in a word of prayer, and we'll enjoy some fellowship. Father, thank you so much for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for the message of